Let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word, which is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the vision of sunder of soul and spirit and is the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And Lord, we pray that as your word is opened, that it will not be me, the preacher, but it will be us receiving your word by the power of your spirit, that you will be glorified that you will speak to us this morning. We, we pray that you will, Lord, that we'll hear that still small voice, that we'll be uh, moved to understand, but also to apply to our lives the things in this passage that we're going to look at together. So be glorified and honoured this morning as we read your word and think it through. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My title on my message this morning is this, the hour has come. And what I mean by that is that Jesus often used that term, my time or my hour has come or has not yet come many times through the gospel of John. Uh, there's something about the hour, the time when it comes. I, I remember when our first daughter was born and um, she was actually two weeks overdue, but she... Um, when Marg went into the hospital, uh, apparently, um, well, she was having contractions and, uh, and then she was told that every time she had a contraction, she had to push. And so she did. But I th we understand that the, uh, uh, the doctor was not happy that she was not pushing hard enough. So he pulled out these great big, I think the biggest ones they had, forceps, and wave them in her face, and, and I'll tell you what, next time she pushed, and it happened, and our first baby was born. It was such a thrill, but the hour had come. We'd anticipated that all through the nine months of pregnancy, and now the time had come for our precious daughter, Rebecca, to be born. And for Jesus, he knew that his hour was coming all through his public ministry, all through his life, really, but then when it came to this chapter and what we're looking at today, we find that it's the last, if you like, period, the last days in his public ministry. After this, he only speaks to his disciples in the upper room, and then he goes to the cross and is crucified. So his last um, public ministry, his, his public ministry is finished. And so we see uh, in this chapter that his time, and he says these very words, that my time or my hour has come. Uh, Jesus had set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew that that time was very nigh. And as he now in this chapter, we find that there are a number of responses to Jesus. We have Mary who will see her love for her Lord. And then the crowds and their excitement. We see the Greeks seeking Jesus. We see Judas and his um, heart is revealed. And then we see the Pharisees and their hatred. And all of this in this last chapter uh, of his public ministry. So let's begin with Mary. Mary's love. And that is so um, wonderful to see. Here was a, a woman who loved her Lord. And it wasn't like a, a natural love. It was a love for the master, the Lord, the King of 
kings and the Lord of lords. It was uh, a, and a recognition of, of the glory in the person of Jesus Christ. And this had been emphasized in her life because her own brother had been raised after four days in the tomb. And so uh, we have Mary uh, wanting to express her love to her Lord. And the occasion was, of course, uh, just after the resurrection of Lazarus, and apparently in the little town of Bethany, it wasn't very large at all, just a small town. Uh, the town people came together and the disciples were there and they had a special dinner. And it was held in the um, home of Simon the leper. Well, he wasn't a leper anymore. He'd been healed by Jesus. I can just imagine, um, and Lazarus was there, Lazarus saying to Simon um, the leper, you yeah, you were healed of leprosy, but I was four days dead. <laughs> um, you know, uh, you can't beat that. Um, but anyway, th here they were gathered together to have this meal. And as they were there at the table, Mary, in her uh, love for her Lord, took a very expensive um, vial or, or, or um, flask of ointment uh, uh, and broke the top of it and poured it on the feet of our Lord Jesus and then wiped it with the hair of her head. And this was lavish. It was almost a year's wages. One denarii was a day's work for a workman, uh, for a person who was working on the fields or wherever. Uh, and so 300 denarii was like tens of thousands of dollars worth in today's economy. And we have here Mary taking this expensive uh, ointment and anointing the feet of Jesus and the whole house was filled with the perfume. What was the reaction? Well, in other, in other uh, gospels, we find that the disciples were indignant. Why this waste? And uh, the people looked uh, in astonishment that she would do that, knowing how expensive that ointment, uh, that uh, oil was. It came from India. It was uh, very rare and very expensive. But it reveals her heart. Nothing was too valuable to give to her Lord. And loosening her hair was considered a disgrace, but it didn't worry her. She wanted to lavish on her Lord her love for him. Jesus is worthy of the highest honour. And it makes me, it is a challenge to my heart and I hope it is to yours as well. Do you love the Lord like that? All the other disciples, they were following Jesus. They believed in him. They loved him, but she loved him. She was willing to give sacrificially just to show how much she loved him. How much do you love the Lord? Not what do you do at church? Are you involved in service and doing things? Do you help people in need and so on? Uh, not just that, but are you a person who loves the Lord? Who recognizes the glory and the wonder of who he is and is willing to give yourself sacrificially to him. It's the only appropriate response when we understand who he is and what he has done 
for us. And so Jesus said in Matthew's gospel that she has done a beautiful thing. And all oh, that Jesus would say that to you and I, that we have done a beautiful thing when we give ourselves freely and willingly and, and it costs us financially or it costs us in terms of our time and even our reputation to do what we need to do to show him we love him and we, we worship him. And the implication, however, is there because Jesus showed that it was more than just uh, an act of love. She has kept this oil for the day of my burial, she, he said. In other words, he recognized something that she and all the disciples and no one else understood, that this was actually a precursor to what was going to happen, that he was going to die and be buried and then rise again on the third day. That she anointed the Christ. You see, the word Messiah or Christ, uh, Messiah is the Hebrew, Christ is the Greek word, and it means the anointed one. And kings were anointed. And so when David was made king, when Solomon was made king, every king in, in the Jewish nation was anointed for their role as king. And here Jesus, just prior to his death, is anointed Messiah, the servant king, though. He said, she's kept this oil for the day of my rule. No, the day of my burial. But then not only did the disciples um, like become indignant and say, what a waste. We have here the fake love of G Judas Iscariot who spoke up and if you like, represented the crowd, but more than that, Jesus revealed something about him that we'll see. That he said, look, you're, um, you could have sold this and given it to the poor. And it, and it seems so spiritual and it, and, and, and it has the appearance of righteousness that this man, Judas Iscariot, who all the other disciples had no idea what was in his heart, but Jesus knew. Jesus knew that he was a thief and that he'd steal money and that the whole purpose behind him uh, wanting to stop that waste of money and, and give it to the poor and the needy was really so that he could um, perhaps steal from it as he did in the past, in the years of ministry that G Jesus was followed by him along with the other disciples. He used to steal from the kitty. So he has an appearance of, of righteousness, a facade. Jesus replied to him, you always have the poor, but you don't always have me. And what he was really saying is this. You remember the great commandment. All the commands of God are, are really encapsulated in two commandments. The first one, Jesus said, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. And then the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. You can't reverse those. The first commandment is to love God. The second commandment is to love your neighbor. Not the other way around. And she had 
shown her love for God, for God incarnate, the Son of God. And he was putting on a facade that, oh, you've got to care for the poor. Our first orientation must be to love God. And you know, the more you love God, the more you'll love your neighbour, the more you'll love those in need. The more you love God, the more you'll love your wife or your husband or your children or the person who hurts you. Sometimes our social concern, our concern for people in need, is a cover-up for our true heart's condition. God forbid that that could be the case in you or me, that we are busy about doing things to help people, but it hides that we don't really love Him. Good deeds make us feel good about ourselves, but can hide our lack of love. The second thing we see here in this chapter as as he winds up his public ministry is the people's longing. And we call it the triumphal entry, but it was really an expression of the longing of the heart of the people of of that time as they looked forward to their Messiah coming. Their expectation was really high. It was at at its peak. And uh, then it was driven by the knowledge that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead after four days. And, And several times it's mentioned in this chapter that that was the actual motivation. We read in verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard of the sign that he had done, the miracle of raising of Lazarus. So it filled the people with anticipation. This must be the Messiah. And so when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they gathered palm leaves and they sang and they rejoiced. And Jesus got on the colt of a donkey and and came into Jerusalem and they, they welcomed him, anticipating that he would be the Messiah to reign and rule and get rid of the Romans and to set them free and be their political Messiah. There was a huge crowd in Jerusalem because they were there for the feast. In a few days, the, uh, the, um, the feast of the uh, Passover. And this was Jesus' response. He knew You remember when they tried to make him king back in chapter 6? What did he do? He went away. He wouldn't let them. He wouldn't go near them. And here's the same crowd with the same mindset, with the same desire, and outwardly saying, you know, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, long live the king. And Jesus didn't run away. He came, but he had to because he was meant to and needed to present himself officially. Prior to this three three years of public ministry, he had been teaching, performing miracles, living and working among them. Now was the time for him to present himself to the nation. Here I am, the Messiah King, the Lord Jesus. His hour had come. The use of palm leaves 
began back, as I mentioned a couple of Sundays ago, at the Maccabean Revolt, a couple of hundred years prior to this, uh, when uh, the Jewish nation and, and Jerusalem was freed from the Syrian dictator and they were able to worship Jehovah again. And so they, st- they picked up in the celebrations following that palm leaves and uh, it was a, a time of rejoicing. And so it is now uh, the same mindset that this Messiah is to be a political Messiah. But Jesus chose to ride in on a donkey. In fact, it was a, the foal of a donkey. It was a little young one. Um, never been ridden on before. And here it was separated from its mother. And yet it willingly brought Jesus uh, into Jerusalem. But he didn't ride in on a horse. If a king rode on a horse into a city, he would be saying, I am the king and I'm going to enforce my rule and I'm going to take over. But riding on a donkey had the message that he's coming in peace. If a king, a conquering king or a king came into a a city on a donkey, it was saying, I've come to work out peace with you. And that's why Jesus came and went to the cross. And it was a a fulfillment of uh, Zechariah 9.9 where it says, Your king, your Messiah, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. Now, this was the 10th day of Nisan, nothing to do with the car. That was the month that they had in their calendar, which is in our calendar, the 6th of April, AD 32. That was the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And it was the day when the lambs, a few days before the Passover, it was the day when the lambs were chosen to be sacrificed. And there were thousands of lambs, thousands. Uh, Josephus, a historian of the time, said that on one occasion there around this time, they sacrificed 250,000 sheep at the Passover. Wow. (laughs) A lot of people and every family had to have their lamb. But Jesus saw this as his official presentation to the nation. But within a few days, there was the official rejection. He came to his own people and his own people received him not. And so Jesus, we read in other gospels, wept over Jerusalem. He said, you didn't realize the time of your visitation. You didn't get it, that, that it was me presenting myself as Messiah, as King to Israel. And you didn't get it. What he was doing was referring back to Daniel 9. And I want to take a little time to explain this. You see, the only chronological prophecy in the Old Testament relating to Jesus was this prophecy in Daniel 9. And it says, From the time that the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, that is, after the um, Jerusalem had been destroyed and, and, and the people had been taken captive in the exile, 
uh, that 70 years later, uh, when the decree went out from, it says, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, from that time till the anointed one, the Messiah, if you like, the anointed one, the ruler comes, there'll be 483 years. That's what it, it really works out at. Um, it's in different language, weeks of years. But anyway, and then it says after the 483 years, the anointed one will be put to death and have nothing. Now, Sir Robert Anderson uh, looked into this and using the calendar that they used, which was a 360-day calendar for their year, which was a, a solar year, whereas we go on the lunar year. But anyway, um, in 445 BC, the Persian ruler Artaxerxes issued a decree that is mentioned here in Daniel 9, that's anticipated and prophesied here in Daniel 9. But anyway, in 445 BC, the issue of the decree that the Jews be freed to go and rebuild Jerusalem. And Sir Robert Anderson um, took the calendar and looked at the, the, the uh, it worked out at 173,880 days, exactly to the time when it says, that then the anointed one who comes will, uh, it will come at that time. And that works out exactly at the day when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the donkey. God is amazing. The, the hour had come. It was absolutely incredible that Jesus rode in to Jerusalem on that donkey on that very day and then the prophecy said that after that 483 years, the anointed one will be put to death. It was only a few days later. Isn't God wonderful? Isn't the word of God amazing that we can trust it and, and know that these prophecies just show the reality that this is God's word and he is God's servant, God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes me just jump for joy when I read and understand things like that. Then we come to the last part of this chapter. Um, we've seen the love of Mary and we've seen the longing of the people. But now we see the last words of Jesus to the nation. He'll be silent to them after this. In fact, he says in here that he, it says that he hid himself. It was over. So now his last word to the nation, and it was prompted by some Greeks. They were proselytes. They were people who believed in the true God, but they were not Jews. And they came to Jerusalem with the crowd to worship. They weren't allowed in the inner temple. They were allowed in the Gentile court of the Gentiles. Uh, but they were worshippers of God. And these Greeks came seeking Jesus. <laughs> and it's here written on this pulpit right in front of me. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. John 12, 21. And Jesus replied with these words. Now listen, he says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Whoa! You know, here they are anticipating Messiah and, and they've come and they've waved their branches and, and now the Greeks come looking for him and he says, now the Son of Man, it's the hour 
for him to be glorified. What they thought was to be exalted and glorified as a king, as a ruler, as the Lord. But he spoke of his death. And he talked about a seed falling into the ground, which we'll look at in a minute. He spoke of his death. His glorification would be through death. Life comes through death. Resurrection comes after death and the glorification of the Lord Jesus. Even the death of Christ was a glory. Paul could say, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we glory in the cross. He is exalted when we see that the the God who created everything before there was anything, no universe, nothing, there was God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. And He spoke the word and it all came into existence. He created humans. He created everything. And this same one is now hanging on a cross for us, for you, for me. There's glory in that. That he would love us that much. His death, however, had a priority. It was to glorify his father. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. He lived for the glory of his father and where to live for his glory. It's an incredible revelation into the heart of Jesus. But the principle he goes on to say applies to you and I. Just as he was willing to go to death and surrender his life to bring glory to his father, he says these words, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, Jesus says, he must follow me. And the uh, disciples of Jesus down through history, including today, have suffered for their faith. Many have died because they would not renounce their commitment and their following of Jesus Christ. His death had a priority, but also his death had a purpose. It's illustrated in the seed. He said, unless a seed falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And it, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, um, some weeks ago, I sowed a whole lot of seed in our garden, in our uh, veggie patch. I've got carrots and I've got um, oh, lettuce and beans and peas and, and corn. And in the last week or so, they've all begun to sprung up, spring up. But I've got other seeds in, in the shed that I haven't sown. And, and they, you know, a hundred years from now, they'll still be there. But when you put a seed in the ground, the actual seed dies. It it disintegrates. But out of that comes a harvest of many seeds. The life of that original is then transferred to many, many more seeds. And Jesus is saying, my life, 
I can hold on to it and for eternity. I'll be unchanged if I wanted, but I'm going to die. I'm going to be like that seed. And in order for that seed to die, in order for me to give my life to others and to give eternal life to all who put their faith in me, I have to die. And then out of that brings the harvest of my life transferred to thousands, millions of others, including me today, including Rob, including Mark and all the team here, and including many, if not most, in the church fellowship. But what about you? Have you received that life? His death had a purpose. And he says here in this verse um, and, uh, that now is the judgment of this world. Talking of his cross. Talking of his death. How is that the judgment of the world? Well, he said back in chapter 3, light has come into this world, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And what he's saying is that the light has come and you've put that life on a cross and killed the Son of God. So that is your judgment. You have, you have shown irrevocably your sinfulness and your hatred of God. You do not love God because look what you did to him. They chose darkness rather than light. But he goes on to say, and now is the ruler of this world cast out. Satan is deposed. Satan is deposed. He's dealt with forever. He is defeated. Satan thought he had it all done. He said, oh, get rid of this man and I'll be happy. But he dug a hole and he fell into it. Now the very cross that he thought he had his victory became the death and the destruction and defeat of Satan. And finally, salvation is extended. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, talking of his death on the cross, will draw all people, all people to myself. And you Greeks who, who inspired this and who, who caused this conversation, uh, you Greeks will be among them, that you Gentiles and Jews will be one in Christ and one in your worship and one have access to the very throne of God, not be kept out, but one people, Jew and Gentile, I will draw all people to myself. And the second thing, he not only spoke of his death, he spoke of their unbelief. And we'll finish with this. He spoke of their unbelief in his final words to the nation. Despite the light given them. Verses 35 and 36, we read, The light is among you for a little while longer. A week. If you like, I added that. He goes on to say, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. While you have the light, believe in the light and you'll become sons of light. And then in the last verses uh, of the chapter, we read these words. And I want you to see here the link between the son and the father, Jesus and his father in terms of 
uh, revelation of light and truth and believing in him. Let me read it to you and, and look for that link between the father and the son. Whoever believes in me, Jesus said, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Anyone who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. And I've not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a command to say what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So it wasn't just Jesus independent speaking to the nation. This was God the Father, God the Son, by means of the Holy Spirit speaking to the nation and revealing the light that they are now turning from into darkness. Their unbelief turned to a settled condition. And sadly, that's what happens, that people become hardened in their unbelief. Their willful unbelief leads to hardening. And so Jesus uh, spoke of this when he said they would not believe in verse 37, so they could not believe in verses 39 and 40. He quotes Isaiah and he, he speaks of that time when Isaiah saw the Lord enthroned. And remember, uh, the, the angels were saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. And amazingly, Jesus here says that they spoke of me. This was me or Isaiah spoke of me. That was me in my pre-incarnate revelation. And then he goes on to say that even though they, they saw, Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Christ and he prophesied to the nation that they would not believe. That's what he, he quoted Isaiah with those very things. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But that verse back in chapter three, uh, chapter one says, but to all individuals who received him, I added the word individuals, but that's what it means. The nation didn't receive him, but all who received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, who are born, not of flesh, not the will of man, not of flesh, but born of God. The son comes out and it melts the snow and it hardens the mud. Get that? The sun, the same sun has two effects on two different things. So the coming of the Lord inspires faith or hardens unbelief. There was a woman who was a tourist in the Sistine Chapel along with a whole lot of other tourists. And the tour guide was showing them all the amazing artwork. 
She looked around, she thought, she actually said to him, um, yeah, it's okay, I suppose. It's nothing big deal. Can you believe that? Anyway, the tour guide said to her, lady, this artwork isn't on trial now. You are. It revealed her lack of awareness of the skill and the amazing artistry of Michelangelo. And Jesus isn't on trial. You are. I am. What will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to him? Let us pray. Our Father, we pray that as we have looked into the life of Jesus and over these chapters that have led to this very last appearance before the people of, of the nation and presenting himself there as the Son of God, as the Messiah, yet many did not believe. Most at that point did not believe. We thank you that you, in your grace, showed your mercy and then after the resurrection and Pentecost, thousands and thousands of these same ones came to faith in Christ. We thank you for what you've done in the lives of people from that time down through to today. And even today, there's people, Lord, that are watching this and listening who don't know you, who have never responded in faith. We pray that you'll keep them from hardening their hearts. Give them, we pray, a motivation to reach out to you in faith and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God and you died for my sins and rose again. I put my faith and trust in you. We thank you for our time together. Be glorified, our Lord, we pray. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <laughs> 